it makes John Hamm's job impossible. Because, say for example, he establishes a standard for uh, prisoners who are eligible for parole and say, you do all these wonderful things, you stay out of trouble, you complete these programs, and you can be paroled, we'll help you try to get paroled, and then they go before, before the parole board and they get denied. I mean, how, that's all hope. How do you manage some? How do you manage a population of people without hope? All righty, welcome in, kids. Another fantastic week of your favorite political podcast, Alabama Politics, this week with Josh Moon and David Person. I swear to God, I'm gonna remember one week to do my name like that. <laughs> Just Josh Moon. Like, it sounded like the the guy, the movie guy. He was hunted. He was hunted and on his last leg. David Person survived. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a so good week. Everything going okay? Man, I tell you what, everything is good. I had a great uh, last Friday night. I had a great experience. Um, Yo, whoa, 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 whoa. This, this is a show for the kids. It's a family show. Right. This is a family. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's fa- okay. Go ahead. I didn't know what you were talking about. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. We don't talk about those things on the podcast. Uh, Michael, uh, the, the parents of Michael Brown came to Huntsville. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and I was, I had the honor of uh, interviewing them on behalf of uh, the UAH. Uh, Humanities Center and United Women of Color. And um, we did this actually at uh, Reverend Dr. Randy Kelly's church. Yeah. Uh, Lakeside United Methodist. And then we screened the movie about what happened in Ferguson. Mm-hmm. Uh, man, I'm going to tell you, um, it is a sobering thing when you sit there with these two people. Mm. And and you have to and and you have to gently, but at the same time directly, ask them questions that cause them to relive again this absolute nightmare for any parent. And I know there are people that say, in fact, you know, I've got family in the St. Louis area, quite a bit of family in the St. Louis area, and one of my family members was saying to me, well. You know, Michael Brown was a thug. Mm. I, I don't I don't know that to be the case, right? And yeah. I have a lot of respect for my relative who said this, but I don't know that to be the case. But but even if he was, even if he was, you know, he didn't deserve what happened to him. No. You no. know, what happened to him was wrong. It was a, a complete abuse of power. Yeah. And then the fact that the justice system did not hold that officer uh, accountable. Darren Wilson, I think is his name, did not mm-hmm. hold that guy accountable. It's just mind blowing. Yeah. 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 They justified it, right? They, they, they yeah. said that, uh, that, that Brown somehow or another turned towards him. And, uh, and that was enough of a threat to, uh, uh, to justify the shooting. And uh, even yeah. though he was unarmed, right? He was, he, he was, he, un- he was un- he was unarmed. He turned mm-hmm. towards him from a significant distance. Yeah. And of course, witnesses say, and, and admittedly, this is disputed, but some witnesses were clear in saying that he had his hands up. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's just, 
and and knowing how sometimes these police officers are, and we saw it very clearly in the case of Walter Scott in South Carolina, mm-hmm. when he was shot in the back running away from the police officer, and then we saw on the video where the officer planted the gun on the ground. Yeah. You know, it just makes you really, it, it's just, it makes, it makes it all outrageous and just makes you real angry. But anyway, had the honor of, of talking with them. And, uh, and then, of course, at the same time, we learn about a shooting in Huntsville, mm. you know, that uh, we don't have a lot of details on. So I can't really, you know, I don't want to speculate on that. But but it was another shooting where police were killing killed a um, a, a black person, and any time those situations happen, of course nowadays many of us, especially many of us who are black, you know, we automatically think, okay, here we go again. Yeah, yeah, and you know, there there, there are two things that uh, I wanted to bring up uh, quickly because we, we we had planned to talk about something else in the open, but I think this is is very important what we're talking about now. One, it, it's all it always strikes me whenever we talk about these police shootings, no matter what, no matter who's justified or not justified or anything like that. Okay, I'm, I'm not making I'm not in this particular instance I'm not making a point about you know who who is being killed by the police, but the fact that in this day and age that we have not developed some level of technology so that the best use of force that we have is deadly force, you know, so that we don't have an alternative to deadly force out there, a a reliable alternative to that is it's honestly, it's mind blowing to me that we, we haven't come up with some level of a stun gun or, or something along those lines that, that doesn't, that, that would incapacitate a person and prevent uh, the need for killing people, it, it, you know, in some cases indiscriminately. Um, and it just, it just is mind blowing to me. And, you know, and the other thing is you were talking, I, you were saying, you know, it didn't need to happen uh, no matter what, you know, no matter if he was a thug or not a thug or whatever, mm-hmm. however people want to classify someone, it brought to mind a story that we, we should have put placed on the agenda. And that's the story of the minor band director, uh, Johnny Mims, who was tased by Birmingham police, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the on Friday night because his band wouldn't stop playing, uh, and he told he had the gall to tell the Birmingham police officer to get out of my face, um, and you know, I and I said, look, I, I think Mims did not handle that very well. Okay, right. Um, I, I don't think that. I, let me back up. Let me say, Birmingham. Police Department released body cam footage on, I believe, Monday or Tuesday of this, which amazing how fast the police department has put out body cam footage when it helps them or they believe that it helps them. And the body cam footage shows a very tense uh, exchange between Mims and the officer almost immediately. Mm -hmm. And the way Mims responded to him with the get out of my face, man, um, made it, it... it made it seem like 
this was clearly not the first interaction that these two had had mm. uh, that night. That mm. um, there was something that had taken place prior to this that they had cut out, and now we just got to, into this uh, into this portion of it. Now I don't. I'm not saying that the whatever it was justifies anything or does anything, but it, it, I think all the context is you know you should have it when you when you start talking about these things. But you know I, I don't I don't necessarily think that Mims handled it. Very well. That said, there was zero reason to tase that man. Right, right. There was zero reason to tase right. him. Uh, and, I mean, and, and see that goes to something. Uh, that goes to something else that I think is is it's remarkable to me how many people don't seem to get this. As a citizen, I have a right to say. Uh, to dispute with a police officer. Yes. I'm not a child. You know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, somebody you can just order around. I'm not a child. I'm not a convicted felon. And even a convicted felon should have a certain, who's grown, should have certain rights. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but, the, but to expect this sort of automatic, docile complicity simply because you have a badge, you know, um, you know, and I'm and I'm not talking about I'm not talking about um, you know uh, uh, putting your hands on an officer no, or disrespecting no, an no, officer, no, no, no. but I'm saying simply standing up for myself as a human being. Right. I have a right, right to do that. Yeah. Speaking my mind as an adult, I have a right to do that. And we see we have seen instances on videotape where the police have allowed people to do that. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. they're almost always white and they're mm-hmm. almost never people of color. Right, right, right. It, it just what gets me is, is the attitude that so many police officers have from the jump with people, you know, and I get they've got a tough job. I, I get it. OK, I get that it's a tough job. But for a lot of people, that's the, an interaction with a police officer is rare. OK, so somebody coming up to you and speaking to a, a grown person like myself as though I'm a child and you can just order me around and I'm going to jump and you say jump, man, fuck you. OK, right. that's the initial reaction. Right. Fuck right. you. Get away from me. What are you doing? Right. I, I'll never forget, man. I went to cover a Magic City Classic game in Birmingham one year. And as I was pulling in. Uh, to the they you know I, I pulled into to park and you have to go to the uh, wheel call window to get your passes. Well, I pulled they had a little area off to the side of the parking lot right there. They wouldn't let me pull in. They made me go find a spot to park outside of the place and walk all the way back over to the wheel call thing. So I was irritated with him and I'd said a few choice things with him. And so I, I got the pass and I got in the car and I, uh, and as I was pulling through there, this was not a cop. This was a, uh, just a worker. And so I had no beef with this person, but as I was pulling through, there was another guy that was waving me, you know, was just doing the, doing his hands to wave me forward or whatever. And I reached out to hand the guy the pass that he had to take up. And when he did, he dropped it and I kept going. You know, whatever. And the cops saw this and apparently believed that I was throwing the pass at him or or had disrespected him in some way. This dude ran, this cop ran and followed me all the way to where I parked at the back of the lot. And when I got out of the car, I wasn't even paying attention. I didn't even know he was there. And so I, I was getting my bag with my laptop and everything out and putting it on my shoulder. And when I turned around, this guy was right up on me. 
and he was cussing me and he started chest bumping me. And so I turned my, I hit my phone and I called my editor at the advertiser and I put it on FaceTime and I said, listen, I want you to watch what's going on here because this crazy person is chest bumping me and trying to get, provoke me into an arrest here. And so, Mm. and he did it, he did it with my editor on the phone. He did it again. Uh, And he, at one point shoved me in the back. Wow. Yeah. Let me tell you something. This dude, when I stood up fully, he came to about my nose. Mm-hmm. I would have beat him into the ground. Right. <laughs> no. And, and it was mad. He had me so mad. God, is all I wanted to do was hit that man. But I didn't. And mm-hmm. I walked off and just kept, well, I kept walking. And I had the phone up and was showing him. And he followed me all the way to the gate, provoke, trying to provoke me and get in front of me and stuff. And, that, and, and that's what I'm saying. Now, as we got up there, there was another cop that stood up and it's like, hey, what the hell is going on here? And I told him what had happened. And he's like, uh, he said the guy's name and he said, come on, man, what are we doing here? You know, mm-hmm. both of those guys are police officers. Yeah. One guy treated me with, with respect and, 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 you know, uh, and the other guy was like that. And so I understand completely that there are good cops and bad cops and all this. All right. But all right. a lot of what happens has to do with the way you talk to people and the way you treat them, man. Yep. And, and especially you see it all the time with young black men. It is, I, I have never heard an officer. It, it is, it's so striking to a white person to listen to a cop speak to a young black man. Mm-hmm. It is the disrespect that comes. And I'm talking, I'm not just necessarily talking about white officers. There yeah. are a lot of black officers who do the same thing to them and the yeah. way they speak to them. And God, there's no wonder there's a lack of respect. Who would respect you for speaking to you like that? Right. You know? Well, and it's it's like my friend, uh, Chief uh, Ken Scott, who goes around the country doing. We've had him time. on here. Hmm? We've had him on our show. Remember? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. That was a couple of years ago. That's right. Yeah. We should, yeah, early, back early in our um, Early yeah. in our, uh, and I think it was a, that was in our first year, maybe. I think mm-hmm. I believe it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like he he says. I mean, that unfortunately is part of the the training culture. You know, the they you know police are trained to see young black men as uh, I guess non assimilationist or assimil assimilationists. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm saying that right. Um, and uh, just people that are that are outside of the, uh, I guess, outside of the, the culture in terms of behaving in ways that are acceptable. And that's just a presumption, mm-hmm. even though, you know, I mean, yes, there's a street culture in the black community. There's no question about it. Of course, we don't talk about this, but there's a street culture in the white community, too. You know, uh, and I'm not talking about just, you know, white kids that are into hip hop. I mean, there's always been a street culture in the white community. What where do you think the whole Fonzie thing came from? The street culture, <laughs> right, you know, right. yeah, uh, yeah. you know, the yeah. gangster. There's also a long history of 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 officers being complicit uh, in in racist acts against the black community. Uh, and and sticking up for racist policies and Jim yeah. Crow and you know I don't know if you've I don't know if you've heard about the dogs in Birmingham and the fire hoses but you know those weren't just ordinary citizens That's doing right. that shit uh, right. you know 
And so, yeah, so th- there's a, there's a history that kind of developed out of this, and there's a whole long standing of a lot of, especially older black people who don't trust police because they have every reason right. not to trust police. But I'm also saying, Josh, that just in white society, just like in the yes. black community, you have a street culture. In white society, there's also a subset of people that are part of the street culture there, you know, yeah. and they just get yes. treated differently by and large. You know, they're not treated as yep. violently, it appears. It appears as though they're not treated as violently. Like they're given more leeway no. to be who they are, even if people are looking down on them. You know, like I've been around mm-hmm. white people that call other white people white trash and rednecks. So they're looking down yeah. on people, but they're still giving them room to be who they are. Uh, they get somewhat mm-hmm. of the benefit of the doubt. But with the black community, when you're encountering that same subset, and it is a subset, mm-hmm. they're not given the leeway to be who they are. They're 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 immediately no. relegated to criminal status or thug status or yeah. worse. Yeah, and uh, and and even worse than that is that the oftentimes uh, the subset, as you, as you said, uh, is then used to paint the uh, entire race of people as as that group. You know, and 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 it, it, you know, there's a lot of jokes about how you know whenever a, a black person does something, the entire black community's got to apologize for it. You know, which doesn't work that way with white people at all. I mean, we got white people that do incredibly dumb shit all the time, uh, but we don't. You know, we, I don't have a, a need to apologize. And and in fact, whenever it comes about that somebody does apologize, we try to wipe that from the history books immediately. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's it just uh, it's just, it's honestly crazy. You know what's a great example of what you just said? Hmm? Think about how when uh, the Obamas were ascending, right? Mm -hmm. And they began to get a lot of scrutiny. Now, we're talking about a Harvard graduate, you know, and and, uh, where did she go? Did she go to Harvard, too? I think she may have gone to Harvard, too, didn't she? Or did she? You know what? I'm not sure. Let me. I can't uh, remember. But, But anyway, you're talking about two highly educated, enormously successful people who were relegated to stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And, yep, um, Harvard Law, Princeton University as well. Okay. Relegated to stereotypes of, of the worst kind or of the, mm-hmm. of the most mediocre kind. And, and you had Glenn Beck and all these people speculating about how they were going to you know, do crazy stuff like I can't remember exactly what Glenn Beck said, but, you know, he conjured up images of, I don't know, a freak Nick at the White House or whatever it was he said. I can't remember what he said. Um, But then you get somebody like Donald Trump in Mm -hmm. who has uh, this horrific record of a lack of achievement with the exception of just whatever money his father passed on to him, (laughs) you know, who was able to create fame for himself on a television show where it appeared as though the most complicated thing he did was say, you're fired. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, You know, and, and yet, you know, none, none of those stereotypes stuck to him or were attributed to other white people. Right. You know, we see the difference. You know, yeah. you see, the, you contrast the two, Trump and the, Ob- and, and the Obamas, you see the difference. 
Well, it's and it's just um, you're right, and I you know I posted a a um, a video the other day. It, it was a I got on one of those Facebook memory things, and it was a video of Michelle Obama speaking uh, about uh, when they had their portrait mm. ceremony at the White House a couple of years ago, and you know it was just a really really great speech that she gave, and about you know about you know who people could be and and why why they were important you know, for, for kids to see them, you know, uh, you know, President Obama coming from, you know, this, this family where his father was somewhere else and single mother, you know, was on food stamps for, for a period of time, raised by his grandparents, you know, pulled himself out of that and, and achieved in America of all places, you know, to become the first black president of the country. And then her, you know, and her history and who her mother and father were and what she was able to accomplish. And, you know, it, it struck me then and it's still to this day, the the horseshit racism that that was attached to those people when we could have used them as role models for uh, an entire generation of children that that to show them, look what you could do. Look, look, I know you're in a bad situation, but man, look what you can achieve with these, with this example, with, with, you know, and, and instead we, uh, our, these morons boiled it down to Obama phones and welfare Queens and, you know, Oh, they've got common at the white house, but, you know, spitting out lap lyrics and uh, rap lyrics. I mean, it's just, you know, shut up. It was such a waste of two extraordinary people. And, you know, and it just, you're right in, in everything you said that, it, you know, you take it, that contrast, you know, that we went from, that we went from Bush to Obama was, I mean, whoo, it's like an awakening of, of knowledge and, and intellect back in the White House, you know, and then to go from Obama to this fucking mound of gooey nothingness over here, you know, that just it, it just sucked the life out of everything and, you know, was just spewed awfulness at every turn and was just a, a, the worst, one of the worst human beings you could ever put in power, as we've seen, and we still can't get rid of him. And, you know, it just... God, it's it, it is it is honestly a portrait of America as what it is and and how so many people are still caught up on the stupidity of the color of skin and how they believe that that somehow makes yeah. a person who they are. And it it's always been the most ridiculous thing in the world to me. And to and to watch us waste those two people. Just because a certain group knew that they could use racism to gain power off of them, and you know, because that's all it was. That's all. That's all Mitch McConnell and those people did is they they made Obama uh, the face of the Democratic Party and and painted him as a socialist who was going to give away rich white people's money to these poor black people who wouldn't work and were lazy. That's all they did. They, and they did it over and over and over again. And they just kept feeding it. And man, we wasted it. We wasted this whole thing. We, we yeah. sure did. A couple of quick things. One. Sure. Uh, when you said, uh, when you referenced Trump and how we can't get rid of him, the image came to my mind of uh, those times when I would be walking the streets of Chicago as a child and I would step in some dog mess. Uh, mm -hmm. That's kind of like Trump. 
with America. It's like he's the dog mess you have to scrape off your shoe. Exactly. That's a good one. I was I was also I was trying to think of this analogy in my head of a movie that I had seen of this awfulness that that, that just and it was it's the pink slime from Ghostbusters, you Mm. know, that just gets in there and infects everything and everybody and turns everybody off and you can't get it off of you. Mm -hmm. The other thing I was going to point out to you, you mentioned Common, and uh, I don't know, did, did you know, were you aware of the fact that Common had done a song about Asada Shakur? No. Yeah, he and uh, he and CeeLo, actually. Uh, and, I, and I say it was, yeah, I think it was Common's song. It was Common's song, and CeeLo did like... Uh, the, he sang the chorus, I think, oh, on yeah. the song. Uh, the song is called, uh, I think it's called Song for Asada. And uh, it's a whole, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant rap about just the the, the true story of Asada Shakur, how she was, uh, many of us believe she was wrongly convicted for uh, being involved in the death of a new, I think it was a New Jersey uh, police officer. Mm-hmm. How she broke out of prison some kind of way. I don't. I don't remember all the details, but she broke out of prison and actually escaped to Cuba. Right. Right. And has been living in, in exile in Cuba for for decades. And you know what? I've met Asada Shakur. Oh, really? I met her one of my trips to Havana. Um. And I, I'll give you, I'll try to give you the short version because I know we're about to run out of time in this segment. Um, so one of the, I was, this was on one of my journalism uh, trips for the uh, Institute for Advanced Journalism Studies. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we went to Havana and one of the people in our contingent uh was a uh, a journalist from the Nation of Islam. Uh, mm-hmm. Her name is Nisa Mohammed, and Nisa uh, had made contact with uh, Asada Shakur and was slated to interview her. and And interestingly enough, uh, Miss Shakur would only talk to Nisa. She didn't want to talk to the rest of us because we were too corporate, and she didn't think <laughs> she could trust us. <laughs> and, and and I think, in fact, she may have suspected that maybe some of us might have been with the CIA or something. And so she wasn't trying to get abducted and taken back to, to the States, right? Right. So right. so anyway, Nisa had arranged to meet with Ms. Shakur at some crazy time of night, like 1030 one night. Right. Or maybe it was midnight. And, and Nisa went out to try to meet her. She didn't show up. About 2.30 in the morning, somebody bangs on my door or calls my hotel room. And they're like, uh, Ms. Shakur is downstairs and we, we can't find a photographer. So I go downstairs to the hotel lobby. And there sitting there is this woman with this big reddish brownish. As I recall, she had. Um, no, no, she didn't have an afro. She had locks. Uh, as I recall, she had uh, reddish brownish locks, and I think she was dressed in black. And um, and I went over and introduced myself to her, and uh, she shook my hand, but she was kind of standoffish. But she did shake right. my hand. She was polite, and we exchanged a few words. 
And then I went to try to find uh, the photographer who was on our trip. Um, and we ended up having to get somebody else to take the picture. I couldn't find the photographer. But the bottom line was she was so particular about and and so suspect and understandably mm-hmm. so that she went through this elaborate thing of not showing up and then showing up at our hotel, right, you know, right. like three hours later for the interview. Uh, but it was, it was interesting, man. She's interesting lady with a really interesting story. And um, I, I continue to believe that even though I know she's one of the most wanted persons in the, in the world from the FBI standpoint, I continue to believe that, that uh, she's not guilty of what they said she's guilty of. Yeah. You know, I know a lot of people hold that same opinion. And I also know that, um, that that was a big thing. I remember, I think it was Bill O'Reilly who really turned out to be a great human, didn't he? Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Was uh, he, he was the one leading that charge. Uh, And, and the song, uh, you know, that that common had, or the fact that common had gone and met with her, uh, and was was one of the things he he brought up repeatedly. I remember John Stewart uh, making fun of him uh, to his face mm-hmm. on his show mm-hmm. about that, and uh, and so yeah, it's you know it, it just seems it was all it was all such a waste that those Obama years were all such a waste, and uh, what what could have been. Uh, and we didn't talk about anything that we planned to talk about. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> In the segment, it's okay. No, it was my fault. It was uh, you know we we listen we. This is our show. We talk about whatever, whatever we want to talk about. about. It's our yeah. show. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, listen, this is lunch with, with Dave and Josh is basically what it is. Okay. Um, all right. We're going to slide out. We'll come back in just a minute with uh, Representative Chris England. We'll be back in a minute. Alabama politics this week. Hey, uh, if y'all would do us a favor. And uh, go, to, if you're on Apple Podcasts, go and rate and review our little podcast here. Uh, that would be very, very helpful for us. Uh, you know, people might pay us to do this. Well, you never know. Yeah, but yeah, but let's not stop at Apple. Also, uh, you can do the same thing on Google Play, Amazon, yeah. and some of the more Android-friendly, uh, you know, platforms oh. as well. I forget that Dave is an Android guy. I am. <laughs> Me, I'm a conformist. And so, you know, go to Apple. But seriously, wherever you go, just do it. Just, just go and, and rate and review, and, and that would be very nice. Unless you're going to leave a bad one. Don't do, don't do that. Just don't, doesn't don't, like that. Don't leave a bad one. Thank you. All righty. Welcome back. Alabama politics this week. Uh, we're going to hustle in here because I've, I've had uh, – Chris England is fired up uh, and he's talking and he said some really great stuff. And we've missed this. Uh, we, kept, we kept trying to cut him off so we could start the podcast and he's, and he's ready to go. And so now we're, we're just, well, I'll just throw out a question or two and we'll just let Chris talk uh, because yeah. honestly, it's who would you rather hear us or him? Um, and so uh, we, uh, let me start with, I, I watched some of the the prison commission, whatever it's called. Uh, we, you know, we won't get into technical names and all that. But uh, this week, and I saw your exchange about the cost, the new cost of this, and uh, some of the other stuff that went on in there with uh, uh, John Ham and and uh, the parole board and stuff. It, are we? Is there ever going to be a way out of this for us? 
No, um, I don't think so. Um, unless, of course, the federal courts put the, put a plan together for us and make us act. Um, it's like in redistricting or anything mm-hmm. else that matters, I guess. Somebody else is going to have to make us do the right thing. But, um, you know, the system itself is is specific. I mean, it is designed to fail right now. And mm-hmm. I mentioned this yesterday. Uh, I've said this several times. Um, the, 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 the prison system, you've only got a few exit points. Um, they are you in you EOS, you serve your entire sentence, mm-hmm. or you get mandatory supervised release. Um, you may have a split sentence that it gets you get released. Um, you die, <laughs> or right. the least likely of all those things, I guess, is getting paroled. Mm-hmm. So, um, when the parole system doesn't work, it makes John Ham's job impossible because say, for example, he establishes a standard for uh, prisoners who are eligible for parole. And he'd say, you do all these wonderful things. You stay out of trouble. You complete these programs and you can be paroled. We'll help you try to get paroled. And then they go before this before the parole board and they get denied. I mean, how, that's all hope. How do you manage some, how do you manage a population of people without hope? Yeah. But also, interestingly enough, the, the 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 commissioner has a assessment system where they determine based upon what you're charged with, your behavior, the things you've done while you're there, uh, things you've done to rehabilitate yourself, including drug treatment or getting GEDs, college degrees, all these wonderful things that we we opportunities that we uh, that we give folks for uh, incarcerated an opportunity to rehabilitate themselves. And they spend years with these folks. Uh, they get to the point where they trust them to the point where they're not even supervised during the day. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. they go out. You see them on the side, right? They just go out. They're doing whatever job that they're supposed to be doing. And some of them even work in the office building with John Hamm and others. They spend all this time with these folks and make recommendations that somebody like, like Lee Wapney uh, rejects in less than five minutes. Mm-hmm. We see these stories like, you know, people who talked about we had somebody with a, who was terminally ill going before the parole board and uh, they've been denied. Or we got somebody that, you know, has a home a plan set up for them that they've been out of trouble for over 20 years. And they, they've got all these degrees and everything and everybody's advocating for them to be released. And she denies them, too. I mean, it's almost to the point now where um, there's no reason to even have a parole board. Yeah. Um, But but the thing that bothers me the most, and I said this yesterday and I'll continue to say it. Everybody always, all these folks you hear talking about, this is about public safety. This is about public safety. We keep these folks in because we're trying to keep the public safe, which will make you assume that these are the, the, the most violent people and we need to keep them incarcerated. Right. But that same line, that same line of thinking takes those folks that they're telling you to be afraid of and releases them without any supervision. So, (laughs) I mean, how do you tell me that I'm, you know, this is about public safety and the, the way you're approaching the problem makes us less safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're at the point where the only way you can get out of prison now is through mandatory supervised release. EOS are dying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I die. So, 
the most dangerous person ends up with the least amount of post-release supervision based upon what these guys are telling you is the best way to do this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and one of the costs of that, as we have seen is uh, we're going to have to build new prisons now, or I say we have to, we are, we're going to build a new, uh, new prison, at least one. Uh, we may not have any more money to build another one. Uh, I don't know. Um, but have y'all, have y'all gotten any answers exactly on how this thing went from being and uh, what was it, $700 million for three prisons? So now it's uh, going to be over a billion. I heard the exchange over this as well uh, between uh, you and Ham. And uh, and I, I don't know why the, that he wouldn't just say what the cost is likely going to be uh, yeah. but because I, he clearly knew what the cost was likely going to be. And it's going to be over a billion dollars, right? Yeah, oh, no question. Um, they met, they have the financing board or something that they got. They met a while ago. It was about 950 then, mm-hmm. 970 then. So, you know, what's a little inflation and some, you know, a couple of million dollars between friends. So mm-hmm. the likelihood is when we go back and meet again, or they go back and meet again, it's going to be over a billion dollars. And let, can, I, can I just tell you that how unsustainable this is? Sure. Like, um, so, again, I, I hate to keep harping on Lee Wathley and the, per- the parole system. I've said it enough. I, I think it's implicitly biased, inherently racist towards a large percentage of the people who are applying for parole. But set all, aside, set all that aside. You've got on one end a billion dollars on one prison. On the other hand, we're spending a billion dollars to a, a corrupt company that's running from creditors all across the country to do a job they know they can't do. Mm. They've already failed at it. Mm-hmm. Our parole system continues to explode exponentially the size of the prison population. We're 21,000 deep in a system that was only designed to hold 13,000 with no relief in sight. Mm-hmm. So if the parole board continues to operate the, the way that it is, we will never be able to build enough prisons. We will never be able to afford to care for these folks. And we will never be able, we'll never be from underneath the, uh, the the control or the dominion of the court system because we will never get this problem right. So the ultimate failure, and, I, and again, I, that's what I said, they, they put up a, a slide that showed mm. increase in prison population and it started in 2021. But if you really want a pretty, you want a, a, like an accurate picture of how terrible this has been since Lee Wapney has been appointed, just go back to November 2019 when they stopped having hearings altogether barely had hearings during COVID. And then once they started, they wouldn't grant paroles and they barely grant pardons. Mm. So the system is completely broken and eventually it's going to collapse underneath, probably already has, but it's going to collapse underneath its own weight created by a very ineffective, uh, mismanaged parole system. Mm. This, um, Chris, it's just depressing, man. It's depressing. It's infuriating. As a taxpaying citizen in this state, it's um, it's uh, it makes me angry to hear all of this. And I'm getting the sense from listening to you um, that we have no real recourse here. No, that we're just we're on a train that we know is a runaway train 
that we know is about to crash into the side of the mountain and we're stuck on it. Yeah. Um, and as an, as, as, as an aside, I think it's another kind of interesting um, commentary or observation about the prison system, Department of Corrections and priorities. Um, you know, all the problems with, with uh, the population, how inhumane it is, uh, mm-hmm. how overcrowded it is, and how we can't afford it to either build new facilities or care for the folks. Um, and we don't see any real intention towards uh, intensity towards fixing that problem. But as soon as we were told that we had to find another way to kill people, put them to death, we found out we put all that Alabama ingenuity we could put together and found mm-hmm. a way to kill people, put them to death. So um, it's just amazing to me. I, I guess it's really a question about priorities, because as soon as we found out that we had to find another way to kill, we'll put people to death. We did it quickly. But mm-hmm. we were managing to let the rest of the problems within the prison system. We can't really find the political will to do anything about that. Mm-hmm. So. It's sad, but people who are sentenced to um, long sentences in our prison system, it's almost like we are trying to to design it where you either die in custody or you die by now being put to death with a gas, with with a, by, um, Gassing. Yeah, a gassing that the the humane society says they won't even allow us to use on dogs. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, it's, it is just another commentary about how our prison system how how, how it works. You know, or doesn't work. Right? A, a thought ran through my mind. This may not be um, entirely cogent, but I'm still processing. I guess last week I was in. Um, I was down in Montgomery in Selma uh, doing some work over the weekend. And um, I was in, I was at that Live Oak Cemetery in Selma. Well, that's uh, uh, for, we were there for probably an hour or less. That cemetery that's uh, basically a Confederate cemetery. And, you know, you, you couldn't help but just sort of, you know, you Standing in the cemetery and thinking about what it must take for something like that to exist in a town like Selma. And then I'm thinking about Selma and the shape that Selma is in economically and culturally. And I'm thinking there's got to be a connection there. And now as I'm listening to you talk about the prisons and this sort of... um, uh, you, you know, how quick we are not just to imprison people and to build a huge mega industry out of it at great expense to the state, but also how we are very innovative and efficient when it comes to trying to figure out how to kill people, you know, to execute people in our state. And I, and I guess I can't help but wonder if there is some connection, and maybe I'm off, maybe this is a stretch, but I just, I, 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 I can't help but wonder, after last weekend, if there's some connection between the, 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 the continued um, 
desire by some powerful people in our state to reverence and revere the Confederacy with all that it stood for, all the evil that it stood for, and some of these other evils that we're talking about today. I mean, do you think that's a stretch? Am I just, is that just too esoteric a thought, or is it too much of a stretch? What do you think? Um, as, as you were talking, I mean, that's, 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 a, that's deep. Like, it was a, that is deep. And I, I say this all the time. Um, um, I know you've heard me say it. I said, that, you know, Alabama is a place where the dead bury the living. Mm-hmm. And it's those same spirits that seem to um, emerge in just about every, every area of human relation that we have. So people who live in rural areas, whether you're white or black, are, are begging for the same resources that are spent in other areas of the state while we watch the black belt die on the vine and, atrophy, and then blame the conditions on the folks that still live there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and it's funny. Uh, it kind of dovetails to this other conversation that I, I've been having publicly about the 43 Road project that goes through the West Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can watch the other areas of the state get, you know, investment at varying levels. And then you watch that every time anybody tries to invest a little bit of money in the black belt, all of a sudden it becomes a a problem. Uh, now we don't we need to make sure we really need to spend the money there. Um, and it's just it's, it's it's almost like that history that we continue to grapple with. And, and, and now um, through different measures like eliminating, I guess, CRT and stuff like that, try to instead of grapple with it now, ignore it. Um, you can kind of see that the theme is developing that uh, like what I said on the House floor when we we're talking about redistricting. Um, that, you know, when when we always plant that we dare defend our rights. Uh, flag whenever we, we we are approached by an issue that you know divides us, uh, it you always end up being, asking the questions. You know whose rights are you defending? Mm-hmm. Certainly not everybody. So I mean, I, it, it's a it's I don't think it's too esoteric. I think you can kind of see it permeating through our Alabama's history when it when, in regards to dealing with you know black folks and and poor folks and women. Um, it's it's kind of a, a, a reemerging theme, regardless of what we're doing, that we ultimately, uh, Alabama's, you know, um, very adept at marginalizing people. And it plays out in the prison system. It plays out in healthcare. It plays out when we're dealing with women. It plays out when we're dealing with, with minorities. And, um, and I, I think many people who are on the outside looking in kind of recognize that theme. But folks that are inside of it who just deal with the problems that pop up are so conditioned that it is just part of who we are here in the state. Mm. The sad commentary on it, but at times I think it's it's um, it's accurate. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was going to ask you about the uh, West Alabama Corridor Project because that's you know it's been a uh, been a hot topic around, and um, you know. It is weird to me, um, and I don't know if weird is the right word. Maybe expected would be the right word, I guess, uh, that all of a sudden there's a problem 
uh, or, or we need to, man, we need to get in here with the forensic accountants and really examine where every dollar is going yeah. on this West Alabama corridor project. Because, uh, you know, we could use that money to widen I-65, uh, you know, or do other projects around the state. When you have the governor who's, who's doing this saying, uh, yeah, well, I think we can do both and, and we're going to do both. Uh, and I, so is it, is it as ridiculous as it seems? It's hard. I mean, it's like when you're in the middle, like when the midst of the discussion about it, I always expected, you know, oh, it's a road project. It's needed. We recognize it. Uh, it's not necessarily just about economic development and bringing traffic into an area that has been economically depressed, ignored, or neglected for years. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, um, there are portions of 43 that are dangerous. There have been stories written about it. There have been st- about how dangerous some stretches of the road it, uh, actually is. So, you know, it's needed in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think it's a secret. You can travel 43. I mean, many people drive through Mississippi to avoid driving on 43 mm-hmm. um, because of, you know, sometimes how dangerous it can be. So, this is a more of a discussion, not necessarily just about economic development, but actual, you know, health, wealth, and safety of the area. Yeah. Um, so I thought we were all going to be singing from the same sheet of music when it came up, because like this is a road project, like it's needed. We recognize the need, and it just shocked me. Like I guess maybe not really shocked me, but it caught me off guard when we started hearing discussions about, well, do we really have the money for it? And I'm thinking. The Bay Bridge project in Mobile started out as a billion dollars. Now it's probably going to end up being $2.5 billion and no one has batted an eye. And look, I know I'm not trying to be disingenuous here. I know some of that money's coming from the feds, right? Mm -hmm. But the I-10 project is building a bridge to make sure that people can get through Alabama faster. Let's just put that (laughs) up. Let's just make them honest, right? Right, yeah. Um, I-65 project is well over a billion dollars. It's only going to be for about five miles or, or so. So we're paying $20, $30 million per mile there. And, and no one has batted an eye because they can match the need with the spend. But over here, the cost-benefit analysis, where all these folks are saying, we need economic development, we need investment, and we need a safer roadway, it flips. And they're like, eh, we may not be, we don't. It's a good project and all, but we could probably spend that money somewhere else. Mm. And, you know, for me, it always sounded like we're, why would we be balancing the needs of one side of the state and the people that live there against the other? And he's, and it, and it, and it hits you. It's the black belt. It's mm-hmm. the same conversation. It's the same thing we've been having. Whether you look at ARPA money, how much money the, the black belt did not get when those, that those funds were distributed, watching hospitals close there, watching businesses leave there. And then you say, oh, well, it's, it's, I shouldn't have been surprised because when somebody wants to try to invest more money there, they're going to treat it like they've always treated it and said there's other priorities in the state. But that will be the same reason. The fact the lack of investment will be the same reason later on that other people use as an excuse not to invest there as well. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, um, it's not, a, it's not a surprise, and, 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 and it was, to me, 
even more telling to see mayors and county commissioners, black, white, Democrat, Republican, all come together, have a big old press conference. Even the mayor of Mobile, Sandy Simpson, came to it to talk about how important the 43 project is. Because guess what? We're spending Alabama taxpayer dollars to, to make the canal, um, the, the, the port bigger so we can bring in more dollars. Well, guess what could be a main thoroughfare to get from North Alabama to South Alabama if you want to avoid the traffic on 65? Yeah. Mm-hmm. A widened 43. They understand it. He understands it. Um, so, and also, hey, those folks that have been avoiding 43 and driving into Mississippi will now take 43 and stop along the way, buy food, buy gas, visit those small cities, and it'll give them some money to help them grow as well. Mm-hmm. To me, as Senator Katie Britt said and Governor Ivey have said recently, it sounds like we can do both. It's a win-win. But again, the caveat is we're talking about the black belt. And, you know, honestly, who really cares about the black belt? Right. Yeah. Well, and, and speaking of last thing, and, uh, you know, and, and I'll just ask it quickly uh, here. Um, uh, redistricting. Um, what do you expect to happen? Um, it's funny that there are people who aren't from here who recognize how important of a community of interest the black belt is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've we figured it out here that what the ties that bind the black belt more than anything else is, is neglect, <laughs> uh, being ignored, and being denied resources. Mm-hmm. That makes them a com- important community of interest because if they're not, the only way to kind of tie those interests together are just to to put them together, right? Um, and you know that's sort of what kind of drove this argument in the court about redistricting and what's the most important community of interest. And as you saw, as we all saw, Alabama continued to hammer home the uh, Mobile, Baldwin County community of interest, quote unquote, that only matters in this situation because it doesn't matter when we're drawing state house and Senate maps. It doesn't matter when we're drawing the state school board map. It only matters when we decide that we need to figure out a way to make sure that we can't create a second majority minority district. Right. Well, the court saw through that um, and also saw through the ultimate, the outright defiance that that we went through, uh, which the cherry on top was to watch it play out in the legislative session where <laughs> we talked about this before, but I think it's just so amazing where we passed the map and the rules on the same days so that nobody else who submitted a map could satisfy the rules. Right. Um, that captured that failed argument, right? And then to hear all of my Republican colleagues and some of their folks from the party come down to Alabama and, and say they were just absolutely shocked. Not that the court system followed the law as it was written, mm-hmm. but they were shocked that they just didn't do our bidding. Yeah. And, that's, and, and that's the respect they have for the court system now. When it comes to Dobbs, we'll prosecute you for having abortion. When it comes to uh, to DEI initiatives and in, in businesses, we will send you a letter to shut you down because that's what the court said that we respect the law. But when we disagree with it, we'll design a argument, or we'll design an argument, use a legislative process to to ignore and defy the court because that ruling was inconvenience to us. And our only argument as the state going back to the Supreme court is 
basically we really mean it this time. Like that's, that's, that's the best we can come up with. So, Oh, and by the way, you know, Republicans appointed you, right? You're a, right. you're allegedly a conservative majority. So forget about the law, forget about precedent, do our bidding. Shows a lot of respect for the court system, but and, and essentially uh, Alabama treating the Supreme Court as a district court mm-hmm. and the acknowledgement that we're basically two justices away from to die and being replaced by maybe a liberal judge to fixing or changing what just happened. Treating, I mean, essentially treating the Supreme Court as a district court. But what we anticipate happening is what's been happening. And I, you know, I said this on a, another show. Uh, if I see a kid driving the car like a maniac recklessly and he wrecks, do I get credit for predicting the wreck? <laughs> I've watched them drive this legislative car off a cliff. Mm. So it, I didn't have to be Nostradamus to know that the court wasn't going to take kindly to being defied and then ultimately the public bragging about it in public. Mm-hmm. So you cornered the district court into having to draw the map. But not only did you corner the district court, I believe you've also cornered the Supreme Court yeah. because they can't send a message to the rest of the country that just ignore the district court and come back to us and we'll fix it. Right. So right. Um, what I believe is going to happen, and, and you know, I'll be honest, um, I don't know if anybody else will say this, but I, I don't care. Um, what I think <laughs> is going to happen is the district court is going to redraw the map. I think the Supreme Court will ultimately not grant Alabama's request for a stay because it'll essentially be rewarding them and then forcing us to use an illegal map for another election cycle. But I also believe that while not granting the stay, we'll still be end up arg- we'll still end up arguing the case in the Supreme Court and likely drawing another map two years and using a new map two years from now. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of the same opinion, although I'll say I felt like that what they did by going, you know, the 40 percent, if they had if they had pushed the percentages up to, say, 48 or so percent uh, minority district, I felt like they could have made a case. Look, we've tried, but because of the way these things work, this is the best we could do. And so I think we think that this ought to work within the parameters of, of general map making. And they could have made a case that might have been accepted. But I don't, you know, as it is, they were just, they just gave a middle finger. But what's, what's hilarious to me, though, is <laughs> the rules that we used two years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we couldn't use those rules now um, because. We couldn't, because the new rules made it impossible for us to do what you were trying to do. Like, we literally <laughs> just changed the rules now so we could be non-compliant and have a reason for it. Again, uh, our argument to the Supreme Court is we really mean it this time. Right. And like, and let, and, and let me show you how much we mean it. Um, uh, and I think, and I honestly, I, I, I think you're right. I'm hoping you're right. I'm just yeah about what Kavanaugh said in his opinion that this sort of this sort of uh, race conscious redistricting can't go on forever. And I'm 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 just concerned that that becomes part of the driving narrative of what is going to be used to say Section two um, is also like Section five and mm-hmm. needs to go away. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm concerned as well. But hey, listen, thank you for for coming on and uh, and spending some time to to really to educate people on uh, on what's actually going on and and laying things out like you do in in a way that is easy for people to consume. And I think it's such a common sense approach to thing. It's, it's nobody nobody else does it better than you. And we really appreciate you spending some time. Absolutely. You know, it's funny you say that. If, if you make me feel like I'm standing out in a in a in a midget contest, that's <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's true. I mean, it's a you, you are standing out though. I mean, it's a, nobody else does it. Nobody else can uh, gets up and, and says these things in a way that people I think uh, can can understand it and and you frame it in a way that's not an easy thing to do. That's a no. it takes a lot of intellect and intelligence to to put things in a way that folks can understand what you know because you got to break down each section of these things and because these are complicated matters and, I, and especially when we're talking about prisons and redistricting and stuff and and you do it you do it better than anybody. So we, thank you. Uh, I, I appreciate that. And I, um, I'm hoping because uh, you know you, you to kind of put a bow on that. Um, you know, the Secretary of State got involved mm-hmm. at the very end and said, you know, this causes me to intentionally discriminate. Mm-hmm. And how ironic is that coming from an Alabama official? Right. But um, I do think, and you know, it, it, how bad does your argument have to be if the legislature, after what we did, said, oh, we don't want no part of that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but I do think that the sense of urgent, there's a sense of urgency on the district court level mm-hmm. to get this map drawn, to, to work its way through the process so we can have a new map in place before this next election cycle. And I'm I'm really, just like most people, really intrigued about how the Supreme Court's going to approach what they have in front of them mm-hmm. and, are they, and how they're going to respond to this direct affront that came from the state of Alabama in terms of, you know, you, you really can't tell us what to do. Yeah. Uh, to do what we tell you to do. So I'm, I'm interested to see if the court system itself, uh, if the numbers go from five to four to six to three, maybe even you know seven to two, to indicate that we, while we may agree with uh, the, the fundamental components of your argument, we do not agree with your approach, and we want to send a message to the rest of the court that we are not, rest of the country, that we are just not another third or fourth arm of your political process we are an independent judiciary that is tasked with following the law. And I want to, and I, and I want to see if they actually send that message back to Alabama to warn everybody else to stop this sort of, stop this sort of behavior. God, I hope so. Yeah. I hope they do. So, yeah. Hey, but thank you. Thank you for coming on and, and spending yep. time and, and, uh, and, and helping. All right. That is, that's Chris England. Uh, yeah. Listen, listen to what he says. It's I'm telling you, you learn more from him than anybody else. You really will. It's yeah. uh, we're going to, we're going to slide out of here. Alabama politics this week, back in a minute. If you're hearing my voice, that means you are a fan of Alabama politics this week. And I want to tell you how grateful I am that you listen and that you're engaged with what Josh and I talk about every week. So I want to ask you to continue listening and uh, continue to support us and definitely reach out with ideas, comments, suggestions. Uh, Your support makes a difference and it means a lot.
All righty. Welcome back, Alabama Politics This Week. Uh, you, you know, listen, if you'd like to get in touch with us, apwproducer at gmail.com. That's apwproducer at gmail.com. Uh, you can ask us a question or, you know, give us some, some advice. Whatever you'd like to do is fine. Um, you know, I, I wanted to, uh, there were a couple of things that, that I wanted to bring up, um, and, and we'll, we'll do them kind of rapid fire, I guess. Uh, we wrote some stories, this, uh, or one story this, this past weekend, uh, about, uh, the influence, uh, of dark money, uh, namely from Leonard Leo, uh, that it is having on, uh, Alabama's redistricting fight. Uh, and we've tied a bunch of people together. I'd really encourage you to go to APR and read that and, mm-hmm. uh, and kind of take a look at the web of, uh, of folks that are that are have brought together on this thing, and and how it looks like there's there's a fix in uh, for this whole deal uh, that Brett Kavanaugh is is involved with, and um, these dark money groups that have uh, supported a number of different people, and uh, up to and including uh, Edmund Lacour, who is our Solicitor General in this state, and who's also been dubbed the architect of our map. Uh, that we submitted back to the court uh, that they, the federal court essentially laughed at and said, this is not even close to what you know you were told to do. Uh, but they believe that arguing on the merits of uh, race-based gerrymandering um, is uh, something that's going to get them over the hump with Brett Kavanaugh. And there's some evidence that uh, they have reason to, to believe that, um, uh, namely these ties to Leonard Leo's group. And then also uh, Edmund LaCour has uh, got kind of a direct line into, the, into Brett Kavanaugh's office. His wife uh, worked on Kavanaugh's confirmation team, um, and they have both been uh, at these far-right Catholic groups, uh, they've been tied to them. They spoke at one conference. They've been members of some others. They're both members of the Federalist Society, which Leonard Leo is a founding member, as is uh, Brett Kavanaugh and several others. Um, and so it's a, it's an interesting story, I think, that takes a look at all of these different people who are working behind the scenes to influence these sorts of decisions. And I think it's something that people need to pay a little more attention to and realize that, uh, you know, that these things aren't quite as black and white as they're boiled down to a lot of times and that there are a lot of uh, nefarious folks behind the scenes that are uh, that are kind of guiding a lot of these things. So what's your you you mentioned these uh, far right Catholic groups. Mm -hmm. What's their interest in voting? Who's voting in Alabama? I don't get that. Well, their interest is in, um, you know, first of all, their interest is, is along with Leonard Leo's is in reshaping the American justice system uh, and also shaping the Supreme Court uh, into a uh, into groups of people that will that are closely aligned to kind of a, a far right ideology, uh, far right a Catholic ideology. Um, and that's always been his goal. Uh, and he has had some great success at this. Um, and, and I would say in Alabama, the reason Alabama is so important to them right now is because this decision could set the tone for, uh, several other states, Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, some others, uh, that are going to go through a similar process. And if it is determined that Alabama must redraw these maps, then all of those states are probably going to have to redraw theirs as well. And in Texas, that is a huge issue for them because it is going to allow so many 
of uh, their representatives to be bumped out uh, by Hispanic, more Hispanic friendly candidates. Now, we've seen that you can you know, that the Republican Party can attract Hispanic candidates um, and and do quite well with Hispanic voters if they actually put their mind to it. But, you know, God forbid they and try, you know. Um, and by the way, since I cussed once in the opening, I've just decided I'll cuss this whole show. Well, uh, so I mean, you know, yeah. you know, that's fine. Well. Um, but <laughs> so you know, once it was done, I mean, who cares? Uh, well, but it's like it reminded me of the uh, the interview with uh, with Matt Damon where uh, it, they couldn't figure out why uh, Goodwill Hunting had an R rating, uh-huh. and uh, and the guys to, from the Motion Picture Association said, well. At that time, you know, you could get it down to PG-13 if you only use the F word and certain other words. Um, So I think it was like 12 or 13 times in the movie. And he said, and and y'all, you went over that. And they were like, "What? No way! How how much were we over by?" He's like, "You're over by 146." Oh, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. he's like, "We don't even hear it. It's like a, you know, it's like um, somebody. It's like a period for us in most places. We don't even hear it." Wow. Uh, so it's just, um, and that's kind of the same way with me sometimes. But um, <laughs> which my daughter really, really loves. Uh, just from the back seat, I hear, "Daddy." <laughs> and, uh, Do you have a customer? Do you have a customer? No, no, we don't. We don't have one of those oh. yet. Uh, I I don't know that I have enough money to have one of those. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, it's, you know, this is, you know, it's just what, what their interest is, is they want to make sure that they can, they can hold on to the house, the U S house. And, um, and as they, um, at, I mean, at, at a meeting uh, at the Alabama GOP meeting recently, the, these folks came right out and said it, you know, if, if Alabama doesn't go our way, we're going to have a hard time, Holding on to the House of you, uh, House of Representatives, and you, and I, I just you know that's not how this works. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's uh, you're supposed to shape your policies to attract the voters. You know that right. then get you, uh, but they want to do the opposite and pick their voters, and so you know so, without ever changing policies. So it sounds like the uh, the intersection of these uh, of these right wing Catholic groups with this with this effort is just sort of coincidental. It's like that this is where the, the this is a lot of the people that are of 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 the mindset of this mindset re- related to voting rights who are extremely right-wing conservative people mm-hmm. uh, are going to populate probably in significant percentages um, these right-wing Catholic groups. Is that is that the right read on it? Well, um, so a lot of these groups are funded by Leonard Leo and his money. And so a lot of the money for some of this stuff kind of flows through those groups. Um, mm. And and I think that that also plays a role. And so what their their interest is, is in is in being able to elect right wing um Right-wing sympathizers, at least, if not some of their own people, yeah. uh, you know, and get them in and make sure that they are holding a line there. Um, but, you know, I, we'll see, I guess, you know, what I, I, I honestly, I would encourage everybody to just read the story. Right. I mean, and, and go through that and take a look at, uh, you know, the ties. And, and I think you'll see kind of, you know, how deep it goes and. Uh, how how much and and I think it'll also give you a pretty good understanding of how hardly any of these decisions are just our attorney general 
uh, working for the people of Alabama and, you know, getting things done where there are, there's national interest in so much of this stuff. And there are pe- national people involved in a lot of these things as well. And, um, so yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, I think that's something that, that, that folks should read. Um, well, it sounds pretty nefarious and, um, and, you know, when you start, you know, again, you start looking at, uh, this infusion of outside money, money coming from outside of the state, uh, and especially from religious groups, that always piques my interest as somebody that is very active. I'm very active in my church, and uh, and and I, you know, and I'm real sensitive to um, this intersection of, you know, what I would say is so-called Christianity and politics. Right. Um, I'm always interested when I see that. And uh, so that, that, that in particular piqued my interest. Yeah. No, it's a, I think it's, it's very, very well researched and um, you know, and I, and there's nothing really to deny uh, for the folks that are involved in this in there. It's Mm. all, it's all stuff that's been reported and uh, you know, and, and, and as information that they themselves have put out there in a lot of cases. So it's a, well, you know, I don't know. Um, all right. We wanted to also touch on, before we get to our right wing nut, touch on the uh, school choice uh, issue uh, yep. as well. Um, well, was there, was there one other thing? Was there one other there thing? There was. Well, okay. there was one other thing. We were going to give kudos to Katie Britt. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We want, we definitely want to give kudos to Katie Britt. What, what was the bipartisan bill? Uh, the bipartisan bill was the, uh, the one that, um, Mm, let me pull up my notes here because now I, 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 yeah, I'm, I drew a drawing blank. a blank. Um, it was the uh, bipartisan bill to permanently uh, end this whole debt ceiling crisis. Oh, that, that yes. we um, that we um, I, I'm sorry, not debt ceiling crisis, but shut government shutdown crisis. Shut down, right. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, Democrats should have done this. Um, back when they had the, the opportunity, you know, a year or so back, they could have they could have done this and and pushed mm-hmm. it through, and this would never have been a problem again. And they failed to do so. And um, you know, I, I understand who's who's holding them, you know, hostage on this. I understand that Democrats were very good about you know passing everything and keeping the government open while when they weren't in power and they weren't the you know uh, the ones you know that that. Uh, that were fighting tooth and nail to get things done. Uh, I understand that they, you know, they were all they were all very statesmanlike and and behaved very well. I, I'm not faulting them for that, but when they had the opportunity to get this done and make it to where it wasn't an issue anymore, they should have done it. Uh, but yeah, congrats to uh, to Britt on that, and also. You know, there, there was a uh, we mentioned there was a couple of other things that she's done uh, over the course of the last you know few weeks here. Um, you know, she there was a letter sent by uh, Senate Republicans uh, to Chuck Schumer in which they bemoaned the fact that he may uh, relax the dress code uh, on behalf of John Fetterman. Uh, from Pennsylvania, who is notorious for wearing hoodies and other things around, <laughs> uh, you know, and now this is just the worst crisis in the world because, you know, these people, as as Tommy Tuberville and others sit over there and bilk us out of billions of dollars from their insider stock trades, uh, you know, this guy wearing a hoodie is now the worst thing in the damn world. Right. And, and Katie Britt refused, was one of three people that refused to sign the letter. 
Um, she, she and Fetterman became friends when they were, uh, you know, as they were both uh, coming into their freshman term and they, they met each other and she liked him and he liked her. And I think a lot of it, uh, was, uh, he and, and her husband are about the same height. Fetterman's mm. a big dude. Uh, <laughs> Wesley's a, one of the biggest human beings I've ever been around in my entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and so I think, um, you know, I think that that helped. And then she would visit him in the hospital, you know, when he was hospitalized for a while with um, with the mental health issues that he had. And uh, they they became really good friends. And she she refused to put politics above her friendship with them. And and, yeah, you know, damn nice to see. In other um, words, she acted like a decent human being, a decent human being. Yeah. And that is that is so very, very nice to see, especially for somebody who is so young in their career and who oftentimes those folks want to toe the line and not step out of line and just go along with the flow. And she refused to do that. And that's that's really, really great. Um, and then also she told the, a lot of the, the white Republicans in this state to set the hell down on this West Alabama corridor project uh, criticism. Um, you know, as, as Chris England has said, uh, it's funny how um, it's really, really funny how all of these projects go through. Nobody nobody pipes up to say very much at all about things. And yet there is this intense scrutiny and uh, purse clutching over this West Alabama corridor project and how much money it might be. And, oh, oh, have the costs gone up? Oh, my God, the costs have gone up, like mm-hmm. with everything else, every other project. In the meantime, we're building a billion-dollar prison that yep. started out to be $300 million, and now it's a billion dollars. And, uh, you know, they just did it in the back room on a Thursday one day, you know, and just said, oh, yeah, by the way, this is going to cost about $700 million more. Uh, see y'all next meeting. Uh, and it yep. just, you know, it's just, it's so stupid. So it was nice to see her say, Hey, look, you know, we can do both and I'll get you the funding. Okay. And it's, it was nice to see a sane person. I, I'm going to disagree with her on probably 90% of what she does. Right. And, right. and, and what she says, but like with Richard Shelby, if she continues to behave like a sane and rational person that you can have a conversation with. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, I'm all right with that. I'm all yeah, right with that. because I think, uh, you know, we, especially in this state, if you're a Democrat or a liberal, and I'm both Democrat <laughs> and liberal, right? Um, you, you realize you're not, you know, things are not always going to flow your way. You're not, <laughs> you know, so what you want is the ability to have people represent you who are smart, who are ethical, who are decent, even if you disagree with their politics. And and in the grown-up world, you realize that shouldn't be that difficult. Yeah. You know, and you know, we we should be able to disagree without being disagreeable and we should be able to treat people with decency and and look for ways to work together. All right. Uh, last thing, we'll, we'll do right wing up. We'll, we'll save uh, school choice for next time. How about school okay. choice for next week? Something for y'all to look forward to. <laughs> um, yeah, because I, I kind of went score shirt on school choice. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, it happens. Our, our right wing nut is Susan DeBose. Um, and uh, she's a freshman representative from uh, North Shelby or Shelby County, somewhere around in there. Um, and she is a bigot. 
all right, let's just uh, well, let's just boil this down to what it is. Uh, she's running around telling people that the the library in Shelby County is indoctrinating children because there was a pride display, a small pride display in the corner of the library for Pride Month. And oh my God, what will the children think if they see the pride display? Like the children that are in the library don't know that they're gay people. Um, you know, it's it, honestly it, it it brought to mind the same argument over interracial marriage, over equality, over, you know, voting rights, all of these things that they have attempted to ban books and push books out for over the course of, you know, the last hundred years or so. It's mm-hmm. all the same bigotry. All right. Sure. It's all just trying to convince people that simply acknowledging uh, LGBTQ folks out there is somehow or another uh, harmful to children is, is frankly offensive uh, to me, it's probably offensive to the children who think who, who are really angry at you for thinking that they're as dumb as you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and and honestly, even the people at the library who came into the library said, yeah, we're all right with that. I mean, they did a survey <laughs> and the people who came into the library said, yeah, fine. Oh, yeah, whatever. That's cool. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, I mean, you know, OK. So, well, shoot, and, whatever. It's, and it's so stupid, Josh, because they act like we haven't all grown up around children yeah. who were clearly somewhere on the LGBTQ spectrum. You from know. the jump. And you knew it from the jump. Right. I mean, everybody knew it. All yeah. right. Everybody. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, and those kids were ridiculed endlessly, man, in mm. a lot of cases. And the idea that now there are books and displays out there that might make those kids feel a little bit more accepted and a little bit more comfortable, and you're out here just shitting on that is, I mean, you yeah. know, God bless. It's, it's insane. It's we yeah. just send it. It's just insane. You know, it it's just insane. I, what else do you say? I know. It's, well, some people need a nice big kick to the ass. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Let's uh, let's get out of here. All right. Uh, we're gonna we we'll give these people enough, and uh, you know, and and plus, I'd like to go eat lunch. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's Alabama politics this week. Till next week, y'all be safe out there. Peace. <laughs>